Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Prince William comes under fire from Martin Luther King Jr.'s daughter. And Rebel Wilson calls the Oprah Winfrey interview fantasy. And an old enemy returns, making grandiose threats. Yes, people, we're referring to Samantha Markle. I'm Jack Royston, Newsweek's Royal Correspondent. And I'm Kristen Meinzer, a Royal Watcher based in the U.S. And this is Newsweek's Royal Report. Hello, Jack. Hello, listeners. Hello, everyone. It has been quite an eventful two weeks since our last Royal Report beginning with Prince William. Yes, Prince William took flack from none other than Bernice King, Martin Luther King's daughter, over comments at a visit in support of Ukraine on March the 9th, although he was partially misquoted. Now, this all got quite complicated, didn't it, Kristen? Well, initial reports from the Press Association quoted Prince William saying, it's very alien to see this in Europe, to see this kind of conflict in Ukraine, in Europe. We are all behind you. The Press Association then wrongly said he suggested Britons were more used to seeing conflict in Africa and Asia. The whole thing blew up in the evening UK time. Um, Bernie's King making reference to horrific comments ITV then the following day released footage showing he did not actually make reference to Africa and Asia, as PA had suggested. Um, A fuller version of the quote also included a little bit extra at the beginning. He said, for our generation, it's very alien to see this in Europe. So did that put an end to it, Kristen? No, it did not. In fact, Bernice King later tweeted that it is harmful for a global figure to express war as, quote, alien to Europe. And she just, you know, completely doubled down on her original criticism. And I tend to agree with her. Uh, What he said somehow suggests that Europe is more civilized than other places, which is completely supremacist thinking. The idea that Europe is above war, even in his lifetime, is also just completely ahistorical and ludicrous. Lest we forget, in William's lifetime, and I'm not talking when he was a baby or a toddler, but when he's cognizant of the world, when he's being trained to be king, in William's lifetime, there's been the Albanian Civil War of 1997, the Second Chechen War, the Georgian Civil War, the Bosnian War, the Kosovo War. I could go on and on and on and name dozens more conflicts in Europe. So, I mean, how can you be expected to be the future monarch when you don't know basic history on your own continent? What is going on here? And I I do think it's worth saying that I think it's totally fine to talk about how like bizarre and terrifying it is that this conflict seems like it has so much in common with World War II because that relates to events on the battlefield. It relates to the stakes of having America like, you know, touching distance of being dragged into direct conflict with another nuclear power. So I think those arguments that relate to the events on the battlefield and relate to the really kind of global nature of superpowers in conflict with one another, I don't have a problem with that. I think where this gets into slightly dangerous territory 
is that conversation about the continent of Europe, particularly against the background of uh, comments made on TV stations, I think, in both Britain and America in the two weeks that came before, where people probably went a little bit further than William in saying that it was kind of really weird to see this, you know, to see Ukrainian people fleeing um, and suggesting that, it, yeah, like you say, that it was more normal for communities in Syria or, play, you know, other countries in the world. And apart from the else, I'm completely blown away that those people think that because I remember people, I remember be, me being distraught at what happened in Syria especially Aleppo I remember having this really weird feeling of like seeing all these historic landmarks uh, were getting destroyed and I had to kind of question myself and say like why am I feeling so distressed at buildings getting blown up when there's people dying so Syria affected me quite a lot and then obviously we had the fall of Afghanistan um, mm. very recently too which was another incredibly soul-destroyingly tragic event so I think yeah that context for me is is a significant part of what led to the backlash against William yeah and I just am curious, is he going to pedal back on what he said? Is he going to apologize? You know, the, the royal family, they, they never complain, never explain, supposedly, except when they quietly do it. But, I, you know, it, it's just one more misstep when we just had the one-year anniversary also, that Oprah interview where Meghan and Harry made clear that there is some racism in the royal family, something that's obvious on the historic record. I mean, we, we know, historically speaking, what the royal family has done as an institution. Uh, there's a lot of racism in there, slavery and so on, colonization and so on, which we've talked about on the show before. But uh, William's timing this time around, it's not particularly good when we're thinking so much about what was said in that Oprah interview a year ago. So what do you think William could do here, Kristen? Because I think that's always got to be the take home for me is he said what he said. What does he do now? <sighs> well, what I wish he would say is, you know what? I completely expressed my thoughts in a way that was understandably offensive to a lot of people. And I apologize. What I should have said and what in my heart I meant was exactly what you were saying, Jack, about like this hits close to home. You know, mm. this is reminiscent of World War II. This feels like, you know, certain countries that are our allies are on the verge of being dragged into something that is very personal at this point. I, I mean, there's a, a lot of things he could say. He could just, seriously, if you're listening right now, Prince William, just play back what Jack said a minute ago and then just like <laughs> jot that down and then say that in a speech. Just say that. I mean, you say if, I mean, obviously Prince William's listening, right? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> But no, it's true. I mean, World War II didn't take place only in Europe. World War II took place around the world. And the events that we're seeing, like if America and Britain were um, funding and arming a, a country anywhere in the world to directly attack Russian forces, and uh, Putin was threatening the potential, for, you know, saying he was, he was activating his uh, de nuclear deterrent forces in any continent on the world, it would be terrifying. Like, it's not the geography that makes the difference. It's certainly not the ethnicity of the people in, in Ukraine. The What really makes this, sets this apart from some of those other conflicts you mentioned is the prospect that escalation continues. Um, I mean, the, the level of devastation and destruction in Ukraine is obviously particularly striking and upsetting. Um, and, you know, we certainly saw that in Syria as well. I think Aleppo has been mentioned, you know, the absolute devastation that was unleashed on Aleppo has been mentioned by a number of commentators in the context of trying to understand and analyze what's happening in Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, 
war is awful no matter where it is. And we should all have empathy for the innocent people who are being injured, who are having their homes destroyed, who are dying, who are losing loved ones because of the whims of certain world leaders. It's not the world leaders who suffer. It's the you know, it's it's the little people like us, Jack. And yes. it doesn't matter where in the world that is. It's tragic no matter what. But yes, I, I think it's fair to say, you know, maybe it feels like it's hitting a little closer to home for political reasons. But to say that this is not something that happens in Europe is beyond the pale. And also, European people don't deserve more empathy during war than mm. anybody else. Indeed. Now, there's another issue I wanted to touch on, which is that obviously William um, got some flack last year as well, in November, when he was talking about the impact of the human population in Africa on wildlife. And he was accused of um, kind of repeating a trope that sought to blame um, African people for, uh, yeah, for kind of climate change and environmental crises in Africa. Um, There was a big backlash against him then. Um, So there's two questions really that arise for me. One, is there a bit of a pattern here? Two, do you think that William is being placed under particular scrutiny because of Meghan and Harry's Oprah interview, uh, because of the allegations made there? Now, you touched on this a little bit earlier, Kristen. What do you think? You know, if there's some additional scrutiny now, I welcome it. But I think these are things we've always known about the royal family. They've always had certain uh, impressions of the world, of, you know, the dark continent, of the jewel and the crown, of these places that are foreign and exotic. And I'm using these terms in quotes because they're quite pejorative if you think about it. But just just to be clear, when you say in quotes, you don't mean you're quoting directly from William. No, I mean terms like exotic and so on. And these, you know, the these places that, oh, the people are just, you know, so much more in touch with the earth. And, you know, I, I mean, any of these condescending statements that people frequently, notably white upper class people, make about places like Africa and Asia, they tend to exoticize the places, but at the same time, look down on those places too. And that's something that the royals have always done and upper crust people have always done. This is not a new thing. So I don't think it's particularly surprising, but yes, there may be people looking a little bit more closely at it now because of the Oprah interview last year. But I I think the scrutiny is well-deserved. I mean, if the population in Africa is what's causing climate change or Uh, is hurting the wildlife in Africa, for him to make that statement when he himself has chosen to have three children and, and you're somehow claiming that population is the problem, let's not also forget that when it comes to population density, Africa lags far behind a lot of Europe. And on top of that, the carbon footprint in, of people in Africa is quite a bit smaller. I mean, when you look at the consumption, the use of plastics, of gasoline, the crazy lifestyles that are in excess in England and Europe and the US, Africa is nowhere near doing as much damage to the world as the rest of the world is. I think for William, he's got to kind of get his head around the way that people who don't necessarily think the same way that he thinks view the world. Because the evidence was out there here, wasn't it? The evidence was there within the public conversation and particularly on social media that those kinds of comments about the uniqueness of war in Europe were going to be inflammatory. And there has been some, I mean, you know, there wasn't at the point that those wildlife comments were made in November, there wasn't an active social media conversation in that moment. But equally, there have been discussions. 
it's not a new idea that that's kind of a slightly colonialist mindset. So I think really one thing that William would benefit from doing is really trying to get his head around the perspective on the world um, that is giving rise to some of these backlashes so that he can try to seize these things coming in the future. And perhaps, like you say, there might be... The Queen's very good at kind of uh, sending a message across with symbolic moments or talking in a roundabout way about things. And perhaps he could even like look for an opportunity to uh, make, new, make some more comments about Ukraine in which he kind of acknowledges some of the other conflicts that have taken place in Europe or, um, you know, he could try to subtly make reference to what was said without directly discussing it because, you know, never explain, never complain means that you don't get upset and defensive and start having a go at people, but it doesn't mean you can't revisit the subject. That is good. You should be working for his PR team, Jack. (laughs) (laughs) For me, do you know what, Kristen? For me, crisis management increasingly is the most interesting lens to view the royal family for, from my point of view, because it's become like, actually, you know, they do a lot of it. (laughs) They do an awful lot of it. There's always a crisis, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm not aware of them having any crisis management consultants, but if I was running a crisis management PR agency, I would be sending them little messages here and there to see if I could get some business out of it. Yes. And one message that I would send along with everything else you're saying, Jack, is maybe hire a more diverse and worldly PR team because they would have caught that. They would have said, oh, don't say that. Don't Mm. say this instead. You know, if you have a PR team that's a little bit more diverse and a little bit more tuned in, they would have said, no, we're going to just reword this one thing, William. I think also there's, I think it's easy for Prince William in polling of public opinion in Britain, he does do very well. And, you know, the polling suggests he is very well liked. But I think that it's possible Kensington Palace might be slightly underestimating the extent to which a view of him is becoming quite deeply embedded among the sections of British society that don't like him very much. And if it if it becomes entrenched, then it could be quite difficult to dispel. Um, and I also think that it might be a more common opinion among young people than it is among older people so now obviously if you look at the breakdown of opinion polling you know you are probably classed as being within that older category from maybe the age of you know anywhere between like you could say 45 to 65 all the way up to you know 90 odd so you've got 40 50 years of human life where you exist within that older community whereas you're only young for a finite amount of time from, let's say, 18 to 25. But if those young people retain those views and pass those views on to more generations coming through, then what starts off seemingly as a small problem could quite easily become a big problem as time goes on. Absolutely. Well, on that note, Jack, we're going to take a quick break. But before we do, a reminder to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. When we're back, Rebel Wilson and the BAFTAs and the Royals. Hi, everyone. We're back with our second story of the day. Rebel Wilson poked fun at Meghan and Harry's Oprah Winfrey interview while hosting the BAFTAs. She said, our next package is for outstanding British film. From drama to horror to fantasy, Harry and Meghan's interview with Oprah had it all. (laughs) I have to giggle at that. Um, (laughs) Interestingly, though, Rebel Wilson said just days earlier that she has a royal friend who she runs her jokes past. So who knows, maybe that means Harry and Meghan signed off on the idea of their interview with Oprah being a fantasy. I do agree with her. It was uh, full of drama 
and horror, though. There absolutely were horrific parts of that story. So um, I can't fault her for that. It, it is, in my opinion, kind of funny. What do, you, what do you think, Jack? I think it's a funny joke, and you would hope Harry and Meghan would take it in, the, in that spirit. But what's quite interesting, though, is, and obviously we don't know even whether Rebel Wilson ran that specific joke past anybody, but she has mm-hmm. previously said that one of her her other jokes in back in 2020 was run by um, Prince William and Kate's PR, uh, private secretary, sorry. I, we should point out, by the way, that this is not Rebel Wilson's first time uh, poking fun at the royals, at the BAFTAs. In 2020, she also made some, you know, jabs at Andrew and Harry, as well as Prince Philip. And that time around, it was um, a little cringy in the best possible way, in my opinion, because the cameras after her jokes would cut away to Kate and William smiling uncomfortably in the audience. And I just loved watching them squirm. Am I terrible and sadistic for thinking that was funny I, oh I, I think it. it's i think it's part of the point of doing it but obviously <laughs> william and kate didn't turn up this year so nobody got the chance to do that um they said that they had diary commitments and couldn't make it so william gave a kind of speech over video instead um but yeah i mean that you know if you're a member of the royal family they take a lot of flack anyway so you would hope that they could just take all this stuff on the chin and uh, treat it you know in good humor i think the, there's there's nothing that somebody like Rebel Wilson is going to say on stage that hasn't been said a thousand times in a thousand more vitriolic ways by various commentators, whether it's in the media or whether it's people on social media, whatever it is, you know, it, it's only going to be a more gentle echo of debates that are already being had elsewhere. So I think they should all just laugh it off. I mean, who cares? Honestly, it's a bit of fun. Yeah. And Rebel Wilson, I mean, she's kind of no holds barred. She's willing to make silly and crude jokes about anybody, all the celebrities, and notably about herself in the 2020 BAFTAs um, award speech that she gave where she was poking fun at the royals. She also went on to poke fun at her own vagina. I mean, she's not afraid to like make fun of everybody, including herself. So I think that any comic who can do that, you know, not just... uh punch up at the rich, famous, and beautiful people, but, you know, make jokes at herself. I find that really endearing, actually. I also just find so much of the kind of award show banter so, like you know, forced and stayed and cringy that so frankly, so, yeah. so stilted, isn't it? I can't bear it. So <laughs> in all honesty, anything that just gets us past, like, you know, really turgid, obvious jokes, like, honestly, <laughs> I would welcome it. And like, let's be honest, there, there are some, you know, we have heard a lot about how difficult it is to be a royal. There are some very difficult things about being royal, but there are also some, you know, there are also some pretty great things about being royal, such as you get to turn up to the BAFTAs every year. So, you know, honestly, yeah, I just think it's fine. Yeah, you get to wear those fabulous dresses. Um, you yeah. you probably get very nice gift bags, even though Wilson joked uh, last time around that there were no gift bags, unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, you get lots of nice champagne. You get, you know, lots of beautiful photos taken of you. It sounds pretty nice. It's not bad being royal, huh? No, not too bad. Not too bad. Yeah, you get you get beautiful dresses and you get, if you're a man, uh, some suits, I guess. Maybe a turtleneck <laughs> here and there. Polo <laughs> neck, sorry. <laughs> Polo neck here and there. I don't know. Yeah, I, th- I think that side of it, you know, it's, hard, it's so hard with men's fashion, though, isn't it? Because what do you do with it? Like, you just have a suit, basically. That's all you can do. Suit, tuxedo, that's your choice. 
Double-breasted, you know, single-breasted. I, I think you can do more. I'm just thinking the royals are not going to take fashion risks, though. They're not going to be like Billy Porter and wear like a gown or a top hat or some of those, you know, more gender-neutral looks that we've been seeing Harry Styles. And lately, I wish we would see the royals and things like that. I would love to see William in a hot pink sparkle suit. That would be great. <laughs> but the royals just aren't going to do that. There's, it, I think men, I, I always have endless respect for men who are willing to take, a, take the dive and do something completely out there with their clothes. I do think it can go wrong quite easily. And that is why I completely agree. The royals are just simply never going to do it. William's never going to do it. Even Harry, like Harry, I guess he, like the green suit that he wore in their magazine cover shoot was a, like a, mm-hmm. pushing the boundaries a little bit for a royal. You don't really tend to see green suits that often. But I, I struggle, like you say, to see them go really out there at such like a high profile event as like a red carpet appearance. I just don't think that's even Harry outside the actual formal setting of the palace. I don't see him doing it anytime soon. Yeah, they're very conservative about how they dress those royal men. Uh, but anytime I think, oh, they're so stodgy. I also have to remember the royals haven't always been stodgy, lest we forget like in France, Louis' court, like ribbons, <laughs> makeup, you know, little uh, pantaloon style pants with knee high socks and pointed toe shoes and all that. (laughs) That was the era for that whole era in Britain as well was the era for male flamboyance in fashion, wasn't it? We, yeah, we don't get to do that stuff anymore. Yeah. Even George, the era of George with ponytails, ribbons, cute hats, the whole thing. (laughs) (laughs) It would be fun to see the Royals in those clothes again at an award show. I think they would be a hit. When we're done here, Kristen, drop them an email and I'm sure we'll see it soon. <laughs> William's listening right now. We already discussed this. He's William, listening. It's true. Don't be afraid of those ribbons. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're going to take one more quick break. But before we do, a reminder to follow us on Twitter. I'm at Jack underscore Royston and Kristen is at Kristen Meinzer. We always have royal updates there as well as my latest stories for Newsweek. And when we're back, we have the return of the Markles and its conflict, conflict, conflict. Hello, everybody. We are back with our final story of the day. And oh, boy, Meghan Markle's family. I am I'm rolling my eyes. I'm trying not to yell right now. It's all just so distasteful. Meghan Markle's family, they're causing problems for the Duchess yet again. It's like their number one hobby, Jack. It almost feels like 2018 is like making a comeback because (laughs) it's not really been at this fever pitch since then, I don't think. But yeah, I mean, the escalation we've seen is that Samantha Markle's suing Meghan for libel, basically. And um, Thomas Markle's also launched his own YouTube channel. And particularly on that channel, he says that he is willing to testify against Meghan in Samantha's case, assuming that it gets off the ground. So, Kristen, what's this lawsuit all about? Well, the most obvious thing it's about is jealousy, desperation for attention, and extortion. Sorry, that's three things. But (laughs) legally speaking, Samantha is accusing Megan of lying to the press about her and thus hurting the sales of her autobiography, preventing her from getting jobs and causing emotional distress. Among the so-called lies are Megan's assertion to Oprah that Samantha changed her last name back to Markle only after Meghan started dating Prince Harry. Also, that Meghan's talking points to the authors of Finding Freedom included assertions that Samantha lost custody of all three of her children by different fathers, which Samantha is now denying. 
So Thomas Markle seems to have taken Samantha Markle's side and he has said that he would be more than happy to give a deposition, presumably to give live evidence in court, one might imagine. And he added that he's been trying to see Meghan and Harry face to face in court for a long time, for four years, I think he said. Um, So obviously, Meghan and Thomas were estranged in May 2018. Thomas was supposed to go to the wedding. He uh, was then caught staging pictures of the paparazzi. He pulled out. He suffered a heart attack and was admitted to hospital. And they have never really spoken again since the fallout from that incident. So I think that's the reference to four years. So what you have here is him saying basically that he's him acknowledging that the only way he's ever going to see Megan again is if he meets her face to face in a court of law. Obviously, tell him, Kristen, that he's not actually, even if he testifies, she probably won't actually be there. So he's probably not going to get to see her face to face anyway. Don't let him know that, though. No. And I mean, she is not going to be involving herself heavily in this case. She's not going to be seeing him face to face. And her attorney, Michael Crump, has been outright dismissive of the whole thing. In a statement released to Newsweek, he said, this baseless and absurd lawsuit is just a continuation of a pattern of disturbing behavior. We will give it the minimum attention necessary, which is all it deserves. Burn. (laughs) <laughs> so it's interesting this I'm, I am endlessly fascinated by whether Samantha is going to succeed in doing, causing Megan any kind of reputational injury here now my understanding from lawyers I've spoken to is that Samantha will be classed as a public figure under US law because obviously she's done loads of TV she has her memoir so that means that she will have to prove that Megan not only spoke an untruth but told a knowing lie under US libel laws. It's quite it's a much higher bar in America than it is in Britain. In Britain, Samantha would only have to prove that the statements were untrue. Um, but reading through the court filings, the way they've put their case is that Megan knew that they were untrue, which is a much harder thing to prove. However. I think from from Megan's point of view, she's not even going to want to get dragged into any kind of trial at all here. Um, and I wonder whether the strategy, particularly after Thomas basically urged Megan through his YouTube channel to settle the case. So I wonder if this is one of those situations where the strategy here might be from Samantha to try to put Megan in a position where she has to settle to stop disclosure of private emails and text messages and all that kind of stuff that we saw in the Mail on Sunday lawsuit. I just find this whole thing preposterous, the idea that Samantha is mad because she thinks Megan has been lying about her to the press, when in fact, Samantha has slandered Megan repeatedly on TV shows in print. You know, my one of my thoughts about all this is, let's say, you know, service happens. And if Megan does start getting dragged into this case, there's also the possibility that Megan could try to counter sue. So Samantha Markle has obviously written a memoir, which has been published. It's published in her own name. So that provides a text that Megan's lawyers could go through with a fine tooth comb and look for stuff that they can put pressure on Samantha over. So it, depending on which way Megan goes, there's that saying that you see on social media, isn't there, when somebody chooses violence. Uh, if, if, Megan, <laughs> if Megan chooses violence, then she, you could even wind up where this becomes one of those cases where Megan sues back and then um, it just blows up. But that's, that's a question of legal strategy, I think. I think if you're going to judge this based on form, you would definitely say that Megan will win this case. There's always still that outside chance, though, that Samantha... I, th- I really struggle to see Samantha winning the case. I could almost see her 
getting into a position where she can make this whole experience quite unpleasant for Megan, though. If this trial goes ahead and if there is disclosure, I could see Megan being basically catapulted back into the situation that she was in with her um, original privacy and copyright case against the mail on Sunday where some of her private information was getting put into the public domain. One interesting thing about Samantha's case is it is actually based on partly material that came out in the mail on Sunday lawsuit. So specifically, um, an email that Megan sent her then communication secretary, Jason Knauf, um, in which she gave him basically background briefing notes about Samantha. So this, this thing you mentioned about the children, that's where that came from. Um, and yeah, so already we have a situation where Jason is effectively in, you know, is referenced in um, in the in Samantha Markle's case, so she if she can get this case going and it doesn't get thrown out immediately, then you know there's the prospect of her trying to call him as a witness. There's a, the prospect of her trying to order the release of more emails and text messages. So I think from Megan's point of view, her strategy is basically going to be to try to it's got to be to try to get the case thrown out at an early stage. Um, where what evidence will, Samantha will try to put up to demonstrate her claims? I guess we will just have to wait and see. <sighs> wow, I just got to say, Samantha, I, you're probably listening to our show too, along with William, in different rooms. But Samantha, I sometimes I just pity you. You sound like you're really desperate for some attention here. There's good ways to get attention. You don't need to do it this way. You don't need to. Anywho. That's it for this episode of The Royal Report. Be sure to join us every other week when we visit the latest royal headlines, embark on some royal deep dives, and riff on all things royal. Until next time, I'm Kristen Meinzer. And I'm Jack Royston. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. And a curtsy to you all. <laughs> <laughs>